as I said the last couple of weeks, this book is designed to help believers in Jesus to persevere to the end by assuring them in the present of who they are in God and encouraging them to be imitators of Jesus' best examples. That's what the whole book's about. The, the apostle and the, God the Holy Spirit to you wants your faith and therefore a life built in faith in Christ to, to not just be Christian in this day, but to persevere in all things to the very end of your life and for that to happen, not mainly through threats of what would happen if you don't make it, but through assuring that God is working in your life right now and encouraging you more and more to imitate Jesus' best examples. Okay. Now, I have never been big on imitation myself. I don't really like the idea. I, I tend to not think people live their lives very thoughtfully. I normally don't want average results. I want extraordinary results, and so I don't really want to imitate people. It's not really so much that I want to be original, because originality is, is, you know, nine times out of ten really silly and harmful. Um, but I, I, but I, I want the best. And so one of, the, one of the things I recognize is even though I am very resistant to imitation, when I find something that I appreciate, when I see its value, I recognize its value is really high. I recognize that it's better than what I'm doing, and I recognize that it's well worth the cost. I, I, want, I want all of it. And I'm willing to imitate it. Because I want to be a better version of myself. I want to—even if I become less originality speaking myself, but I become more noble as the being that I am, I want that ten times out of ten. If I, if I have to choose between being a more noble being and a more idiosyncratic original me, how shallow would it be for me to want— the little idiosyncratic original me, as opposed to the more noble being. Right? If all the angels were exactly the same, I would rather be just like them than to be a little version of myself. I want to be singular in greatness and in goodness. Not just in difference, right? So one of the things I've noticed is that if we look at this idea that we've looked at over these three sermons, that imitating Jesus means imitating his examples. That if, if we were looking for examples of people who have the evidence of grace in their life that leads towards thriving perseverance. That's our goal. Thriving perseverance is our goal. So we're looking for the evidence of the work of God, the assuring grace operating in the lives of people who have persevering faith and thriving faith. And then we're going to imitate those people. And that's how we're going to imitate Jesus, is by imitating those examples, right? ordered by our reading of Scripture. One of the questions that we, we've been asking is, th so what are we looking for? And th this book, 1 Thessalonians, gives at least four straightforward examples of what we're looking for, right? One is conversion. Deep, transformative, complete faith in Christ. Putting aside all that went before and embracing all that is in front, becoming a new creation in Christ, receiving the new birth, recognizing that there's a complete regenerative, completely different transformation. I went on about that for a long time in the last sermon. You can go back and watch that. That that produces a consistent ordering of the heart towards joy in what God is doing in us, which is worship. Right? But then that produces that faith and that joy reorders itself to say, okay, if you have faith in Jesus, and if belonging to Jesus and knowing Jesus creates or motivates or bubbles up a kind of joy to, 
to celebrate his, his worthiness, then what would you then do to a being who is perfect human that you think is that worthwhile? Right? And the answer is, you would imitate him. You would want to be like him. You would want your life to be reordered to be like his. Right? And that imitation of life is what Christians have called discipleship. And you would also want others to be able to know this and enter into both this converting faith, this worshipful joy, and this imitating discipleship of love and appreciation of Christ's beauty and, and that. And you would tell other people, no matter what happened to you, you wouldn't be particularly concerned what happened to you. You would be mainly concerned in love what they could hear about this appreciable beauty in which you've been fully converted to, in which you worship deeply out of joy. And that—I'm just using the word martyrdom because I feel like the word mission and even the word evangelism is too familiar to us. We just say it all the time. Oh, we're going to do some evangelism. Oh yeah, our church is on mission. Is it? Or are you just good at business talk? Is this a Dilbert cartoon? Or are we, are we witness, faithful witnesses for Jesus everywhere that we go, fully open in our lives, no matter what happens to us? And there's no way that that is true. There's no way that's true. And so we'll talk about that a little bit today. So we're going to do three and four. The first thing we're going to talk about is discipleship, which is that we imitate those who are proven examples in the pursuit of godliness. We imitate those who are proven examples in the pursuit of godliness, right? We're not going to have anybody to imitate who is a perfect disciple. But there are lots of people who we can imitate who are proven disciples. And the, their provenness indicates their perseverance. I did not mean to put all these P's in this point. I just did a bunch more. Sorry about that. Um, the, the point is, is that you're looking—you're not looking for perfect. You're looking for proven— and you're looking for somebody who the provenness is not in their perfection. Their provenness is that in their consistent pursuit of godliness. They want to be like Jesus. So in their spectacular failures, they are accompanied by wholehearted repentance, turning back around, reordering, figuring out what they did wrong, doing it better the next time. I would rather follow somebody in imitation who spectacularly fails and fabulously repents than someone who is self-righteous in their smugness, has a closed life so I can't see all that's wrong with them, and pretends as though they're mirroring the perfect Jesus when their heart is filled with all kinds of seething sin of the flesh. Now, happily, the work of grace makes it so those are not your two only choices. There are people who have grown a lot in godliness— and who there is much to imitate what they do. Not just imitating their repentance, but imitating their action and their way of life and their heart. And they're all around us if we are open to it, right? Now, one of the things that's important to recognize is that if faith in conversion and joy in worship would lead us to imitate Jesus, then one of the issues that we have is the fact that because Jesus ascended into heaven and through his ascension, from God precedes the Holy Spirit to the entire globe, to every human being, the one man, Jesus, who is spatially limited in his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit gives the presence of God to all of humanity. Anyone in humanity who would believe, and even working among those who don't believe, that was not possible in the incarnate Son. The minute he took on a body, he was spatially located, and he was an offense. He's a man, not a woman. He's a Jew, not a Gentile. He's all these specific things, but he had to be a specific thing, 
to be a human being, to do that work, to preach the gospel, to die and rise from the dead, and to the atoning work of our great high priest. When he ascended, the Holy Spirit was given to us. Spiritually, he is, after all, the Holy Spirit. What that means is, is there's no concrete, incarnate, human Jesus anymore for you to become a formal disciple of. Right? So what, what you need is you—so how do you imitate Jesus? Right? And the answer is, first, you imitate his words— the way of life laid down in his words, and the historical example of his apostles, but those come to us and are embodied around us by his other believers, by those who have pro- who have a proven track record of pursuing godliness, and they have become examples of Jesus. Now, there's a few um, there's a few things I want to point out from the verses specifically related to this. Right when Paul says in verses five to seven, you know how we lived among you lived among you, for your sake, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering, and you welcomed the message of joy given by the Holy Spirit so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. If you didn't hear the sermon last week, Macedonia and Achaia are two regions of modern-day Greece. They're two states close to each other. He's saying this whole region, that happened, right? So there's There's five things you can see that Paul is specifically talking about in relation to the parts of how imitation works in a healthy body of Christ. The first is integrity in the people who are examples. Right? There's there's two components to that. One is they lived open lives. They, They were not managing how other people saw them in their reputation, but in order for them to be examples, a person who's an example or a mentor has to open their life so the person can observe them fully. The more you limit how much you can be observed, the less they can see the whole picture, and the less they can imitate your life as a whole. And so in order to be a mentor, in order to be an example, in order for there to be imitators, there have to be open lives. And so Paul says later in this epistle, we loved you so much that we not only shared the gospel with you, but we shared our lives as well, right? And then he also says how we lived among you, meaning that not only were their lives open, but their lives weren't an open mess. Their lives were open— and they were filled with godliness. And so they opened their lives, and they had imitated Jesus and grown in godliness, so that when people looked into their open lives and came into their open lives, what they found was integrity and something worth imitating, right? The second thing is, he says, for your sake. Now, think about that for a second. He didn't do it for their sake, right? Paul didn't believe in Jesus in the first place and follow Jesus for the sake of the Thessalonians he'd never even thought of at that time. He wasn't even going to go to Greece until the Holy Spirit comes to him in Turkey and says, go over to Macedonia and help those people. Right? What he means is, when we were with you, when we chose to do what we did, we did it in part to inspire you. Right? And, and if you've ever tried to be an example or a mentor, you felt that. You don't just want to— when you're around people that could imitate your life, you're not— you're doing it for Jesus, right? You're imitating Jesus. You want to be like Jesus. You want to be the disciple that you can be. You want to grow in godliness through the grace that God is working in your life. But when you look at the person who might imitate you, there's a compassion and a love for them where you're like, I want to inspire that, right? I've said this before. One of the reasons why I care very much about High Point being a teaching church is not just its emphasis on the younger people who we're trying to raise up and release in a ministry, but it has a big effect on me. Because when I spend time around people who want to do the work of God, I want to inspire them. I don't want to be the schlub senior pastor who wants them to work really hard and like, bring me my coffee and what if I drank coffee? And like, but I don't, 
but I'm not godly and I'm not pushing forward and I'm not seeking godliness and to imitate Jesus. I want to inspire them. And so most of the people that I've ministered to, my desire to see them grow or believe is, is moves me because I want to move them. And so Paul says, we lived among you like this for your sake. Right? So when you, when you look out, someday we'll, we'll hopefully gather as a church again. And when you look around at other people, people who are not as far along in the faith as you, people who are younger, people who are still forming the shape of their lives, the people in our kids' ministries and in our youth ministries, there should be a compassion for them that you live among them as much like Jesus as you possibly can for your own sake, for Jesus' sake, but for their sake. And you can see that passion in Paul and Silas that they were willing to live among them, which included them being imprisoned. Well, not imprisoned, but attacked and their life being threatened and them being fearful for their lives and imprisonment. Be, and it was for the sake of the Thessalonians. And we can never be the examples we have to be. We'll never be a church filled with examples unless the disciples of Jesus, the, the people who've grown in some maturity in faith, who have a proven track record of persevering pursuit of Jesus, if those people don't have compassion and a desire to inspire those who could be imitators, it won't happen. They won't be inspired, and we won't live inspiringly enough. We should be moved by that and love for them. The third goes on the side of the, the, um, the one who imitates, and that is you have to appreciate it. Right? If, if, you're, if you're the person who should be imitating an example, right, which is all of us on some level, on some level, all of us should be imitating an example beyond us, and being inspiring, an inspiring example of those who are, who are pursuing Jesus functionally in some way behind us. And if that's the case, as an imitator, you have to see what's there and not be a nitpicker and not be like, well, you're not cool enough. Or you're, I, there's always ways to fault find in other people. Because we, well, it's probably because we have a lot of faults. And part of it is you're just coming from a different perspective. There's stuff you don't see. There's stuff you don't understand. If you want to criticize other people, you can. Just watch television. There are people whose whole livings are wrongly, falsely, weakly, flippantly criticizing people doing difficult things in earnest. Right? It's one of the reasons why I would love to be a sports commentator, but I won't ever be one. Because I don't have the character to be a sports commentator Right? Just like I don't have the character to be a politics commentator. And I don't have, I don't have the character to be a business commentator. Because I, I have no right to critique Elon Musk and how he runs his business. But I would if somebody gave me a microphone and some cash. Right? What needs to happen in the imitators is we have to appreciate what we see. Right? And we have to appreciate it relative to the cost. Right? You can, for example, go, go look at a house. Let's say you want to buy a house. And you go look at a house. And you say, it's a beautiful house. You appreciate the house. Okay, great. You appreciate the house. The house costs $370,000, let's say, right? Do you appreciate it that much? Right? Do you appreciate it not just enough to pay that, but do you appreciate it enough to be glad you paid it all the days you live in the house? Part of appreciation is recognizing the cost and being not just willing to pay it begrudgingly so you'll be unhappy you paid it the rest of your life, but to be glad you paid it the rest of your life, right? And you see this with the Thessalonians. He says, you appreciated us. That is, you saw how we lived, and you imitated us. And he said, and you did it in spite of severe suffering. So they knew they were going to suffer. They saw that they suffered. They did suffer. And in all of that, 
they stuck with it because they appreciated the value of Jesus as displayed by the apostles, and they saw that its value is not worth comparing to the suffering that they faced, which was severe. And then the last thing is change. He says, so you became a model to everybody else. Um, one of the ways that people have said this in, um, in Christian ministry is that everybody should have a Paul and everybody should have a Timothy, right? T- Paul is, was this lead apostle, and Timothy was somebody he, he taught and was like younger coming up behind him. And, he, and so he said, you know, Timothy learned from Paul, right? And Paul always had a Timothy. He had lots of people he was teaching. And in your life, there should be people who, for who are an example for you. If there aren't, and there should be people also who should be, you should be, have a, a, a compassion, be living for their sake such that they could imitate something in your life. Both of those should be operative. So one of the questions to ask yourself this week in your devotional times or in your prayer times is, are those both operational? Are you humble enough and appreciative enough that there is some disciple that you are looking to or a group of disciples that you're looking to that you see as examples. They're proven in their pursuit of Jesus. There are things in their life, not everything, but things in their life you can imitate and you are imitating them. And that you are living toward others for their sake to inspire them in the faith so that they will pursue Jesus more and there are things that they could imitate in you. Are both of those things operative in your life? One of, the, one of the reasons why I think that this is important is, is that you see in this passage that the gospel being preached, the message of the gospel, and godliness in people are, all, are always together. There's always the, the truth about Jesus, the gospel, turning to God from idols, and people acting and believing and growing in godliness, having a faith that, that works and a love that labors and a, a, a joy that's pers- hope that's persevering. Right? Those two always go together. It, for those of you who need— a pop culture reference to find anything spiritually meaningful. This would be a little bit like when in Lily Blonde, when Elwood gives her resume and she's like, yeah, it's pink and, it, and it's, it's scented. I think it gives it a little something, right? Like without the fragrance of the beauty of the gospel, the words of the gospel are going to fall flat on people. It is meant to be, it, it, the gospel is a dress that is supposed to go with its specific perfume, right? The preaching of the gospel is meant to go along with the fragrance of godliness. Without the two together, nothing happens properly. One of the reasons I say this too is, is because once you understand the nature of discipleship and imitation and example, you realize that the church could be a heck of a lot simpler and a heck of a lot cheaper. I talked with a, I was talking with a pastor this week who is doing some sa- the same research I am and thinking about some of the same issues. And he lives in Illinois. Illinois, last week or the week before, their bonds got degraded to just above junk bond status. It's the last thing you can be before your bonds are completely junk bond. The state is going bankrupt, and it's the only state in the mid-Atlantic region that is losing population. Mainly taxpayers, people who actually can do good jobs. And so they're losing their tax pay, and they're kind of in a death spiral, and there's all kinds of problems. And He's been doing this research because he's in Illinois, but I'm like, well, when, if that happens in Illinois, it's going to affect Wisconsin. Like, people are going to come here. And so we had this conversation. And he said, one of the things I'm doing at my church right now is restructuring it so that our church can thrive with a budget that's 40 to 50 percent less than it is right now. I think for a number of political, economic, taxation, and other reasons, I suspect that in the next 20 or 25 years, that's going to be true for almost every church in America. That the way we do church right now, where High Point Church with a budget of about $2 million spends about a million dollars on staff. And a lot of the rest of that on a huge building. 
that mainly only we use for all kinds of great things. It's full all the time. But what happens when people decide that we should pay property taxes, and that's tens of thousands of dollars, and other exemptions go away, and other taxations go up, and people start getting squeezed financially? What's going to happen? What's going to happen is this way we do church right now is going to go away. And what, what's that going to mean for you? What it's going to mean is your, your faith cannot rest on this model. This, this like consumeristic showboat, um, show pony pastor who's funny with like well-produced music and people who wear cool clothes doing the stuff and the staff getting younger all the time and like we're so like blah, 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 blah. That's all bull. Like it's great that we can afford that right now. It's great that I can make my living doing this, and I don't have to be bivocational. All of our staff are worth employing, and they all do really good work. But when I go to India, and I speak to pastors, they look at me like I have five heads. Like, they're like, you have how many staff? You spend how much money? You do what? They couldn't dream of that because their people have nothing like that, that kind of disposable income. What is the Church of Jesus Christ going to do if we aren't the richest country in the world? We don't have this kind of standard of living. Our debt catches up with us. What's going to happen to your faith? What's going to happen to your faith when you have to do the ministry of this church not led by a theologically trained group of pastors? What's going to happen to your faith if you're a staff member of this church and you have to get another job and do ministry on the side bivocationally? What's going to happen to your faith when this model goes away? In order for us to even keep this building, it has to become a community center. We may have to have five or six different churches worshiping in it, and we have to decentralize things. When bricks, brick and mortar are like a noose around your neck rather than something that's helpful to place to do ministry, what's going to happen to your faith? Will you only come to worship if you can come to a place like this to worship? What if the pastor's not interesting every week? Are you committed to follow Jesus in converted faith Worshipful joy, imitating his best examples, and living out his message to everybody around you fully and deeply, regardless of the accoutrements that can be purchased in which you can consumeristically receive those goods and services. Because I fear for us, I fear for us in the American church and in churches like ours, in which we have the great benefit of receiving competent ministry from educated people who love the Lord, who, where, we can, where things are easy and we can drop off kids in ministries and people will love them for us. And I'm not saying any of that is bad in itself. I think worship in heaven is going to be better than this. There's a lot of resources up there. But in this mortal coil, under the curse, responding to what happens as the church of Jesus Christ, organically and personally and through Needing nothing. I mean, do you notice the only thing you need to have a church is human leadership under Christ and two kinds of food. That's it. You need, in every church, Paul appointed elders. So there's a structure to shepherding in a local church, but no reference to size. And secondly, wine and bread. Now listen, what, think about that. One of them you basically need to survive. The other one you can basically count on non-Christians making for us no matter how many non-Christians there are. Like, that's, and that's all you need for a church. And some water, which is relatively plentiful. Everything we have in addition to that is bonus. It's not bad. It's not evil. 
But even now, if we committed ourselves more personally with discipline and clarity and worship and converted love towards imitating and discipling one another, we might not need to spend two million dollars on the ministries that we do. And we could give that money to help people rise out of poverty, to have the gospel preached in foreign places, to do all kinds of incredible things that we can't afford now because we have to pay the insurance and we got to make that budget and we got to fix that copy and we got to pay Nick's health insurance and we got to do all this stuff. But I know if I stop doing any of it, our church is going to shrink and contract. There's a way in which we are spiritually dependent on this model. I'm telling you, friends, that is not good. It's like being depressed and taking depression medicine for a little while to do the counseling to grow mentally strong enough so that you don't need the medication anymore. But 16 years later, you're still switching medications to try to figure out how to deal with your feelings about a problem you could have dealt with. Things are going to change, and we've got to get ready. We may have 10 more years. We may have 15 more years. Why wait? Okay, I should move on. Since I'm out of time, I should move on to my second point. Okay, the second point is that we are called to a kind of martyrdom, which is, well, martyrdom comes from a Greek word, which means witness. Literally, a witness in a court of law, giving formalized, truthful statement about what you saw and what is true. That's what it means. Witness. And you're willing to say it, so help you God. That is, no matter what happens to you, you're going to tell the truth. One of the things that we see in this passage is that, that's really remarkable, is Paul says, So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has been made known everywhere. So on one level, I mean, if you look at— um, at pastoral resources for First Thessalonians. It's like, oh, chapter one is great for evangelism. Sharing your faith. Sharing your faith. And that's true. This, what this says is, these people, the message of Jesus, their faith in Jesus, rang out in a whole region, and they became examples to everyone. And that shows that they were sharing their faith, and that they were, and they were doing evangelism. But, but, it, but it was more than that. It was more than that. But I don't want to move off that point too quickly. Let's just say just one more thing about it. Think about this for a second. Paul says, when he talks about this later in the verses, he says, when he, go, when he went to these other places in Macedonia and Achaia, he says, for they themselves reported what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, told us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let me think about this. Paul and Silas were going there to tell them what happened. Like Paul and Silas, their whole job is being a herald. Somebody goes and tells people what's happening. What happened with Jesus? What's happening through Jesus in the churches? He gets to like, let's say, Corinth and Achaia, and they're like, like, you're not going to believe what happened with the Thessalonians. They're like, oh, we already know. Yeah, so you came, you preached, they turned, they, uh, they tell the whole thing. They're like, wait, how is the heraldry outpacing the heralds? How, it's like the news getting past the newspaper. It's like something going out on social media and everybody retweets, yeah, I already knew. Right? That's, that's meant to kind of astound you. He's, he's saying, we're the ones who tell people. And then we went to these places where the gospel is unknown in your region, and they told us about the message we were bringing to them. Now, that's never happened to me. But that's what—in that, the Bible, there is very little 
teaching that seems to insinuate that preaching is the main way the gospel will be known in a place where the gospel is already known. Most of the preaching we read in the scriptures and read about in the scriptures is, is teaching and preaching that happens to non-believers by someone who enters a new region in which the church is not yet established. In most other cases, the believers gather for preaching and teaching, and yet the spreading of the gospel and the act in places where there's already a church seems to happen through people constantly telling other people about their faith. That's how the gospel spreads. Not through the evangelism of the pastor. The pastor trains others in godliness as a shepherd, but then the word and faith ring out from us, right? But it's also important, lastly, to recognize that that's true no matter what happens to you. And you see, the reason why we don't share our faith, the reason why evangelism doesn't happen very much, and we're not always on mission, even though we're good at saying those words, is because at bottom, we are concerned what will happen to us. We're concerned about what people will think about us. We're concerned about getting rejected. We're thinking about people using it against us to attack us when we're trying to apply for a promotion or something like that. Somebody will say that we talked about religion in a place we shouldn't have done so or something like that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be tactful and careful, but you have to be so careful with tactful and careful because what it ends up doing is it becomes a pathogen in your system that shuts down your capacity for speech. It starts with, I'm not going to say something like in the middle of a staff meeting at my job because it's inappropriate to do that. Or I'm not going to witness to somebody for an hour when I'm at work because I'm essentially stealing from my boss and it's inappropriate to do that. To go from that to not even saying you went to church this weekend when people are talking about what they did this weekend. Or not saying why you made a decision was because of your faith in Jesus and how he's changing you. Or not even, not even those little things are inviting people to enter into that conversation. To hold even that back to the point where we really do shut up about it. And that is the means by which every— your faith doesn't have to be utterly extinguished for you to not talk about it. And when you stop being willing to say something about it, you are already starting to lose it. Because what it means is there's something more important than King Jesus' worth being made known. That thing is your other religion. You already have two religions, and if you have two masters, you will hate one and love the other. Let me just end with this. As you read in chapter 2, one of the things that becomes clear is that this attitude of martyrdom, that I will say what's true about the Jesus that I imitate, the one I'm converted to and who I worship, and who I seek to be like, I will open my mouth no matter what happens to me, places you in the family line of believers. It is literally this that places you in the family line of all believers. And being a martyr in this sense, that is a faithful witness no matter what happens to you, even unto death, is not something that's true for preachers or for people in full-time ministry or for special kinds of Christians. The identity of a martyr, by this definition, the biblical one, is one that every believer can and in some sense needs to embrace. Now, if you fail in this, does it mean you're not a Christian? No, there's a place in 2 Timothy where Paul says, when in my first in my first trial in Rome, nobody stood with me. Nobody stood up with me and said, the gospel is true, you shouldn't punish people for it. They all were too afraid. And he says, may it not be held against them. Paul's attitude was not. 
that if you failed out of fear and in infirmity and weakness, that you should be damned for it. That wasn't his attitude. But what his attitude was is that in the growing bravery of the confidence and worship of Jesus the King, we should grow in the boldness and bravery that we are willing to say what's true no matter what happens to us. And we will never be good at evangelism. And we will never share our faith. Our faith will never ring out from us to places where when I go places, they're like, don't talk to me. I already know. I know, I know everything about High Point Church and its people. It, the, the, the message has already reached me. The message and the fragrance. That will never happen if we do another evangelism class. That's not going to happen if we have it right. We, we reworked the wording of our mission statement. Our mission statement is worthless. We already know it. We took it right out of the Bible. Make disciples of Jesus. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that or any more interesting than that. The problem with our mission isn't that we don't have it written. It's that we don't do it. And the reason we don't do it isn't because we don't have skills for evangelism. We tell ourselves that lie. It's not true. You gain skills for evangelism by being a faithful witness. The reason we don't do it is because we aren't martyrs in our hearts. And we can be if not through working harder, but by faith. You have to believe that Jesus is worth everything. No matter what happens to you. No matter what happens to you. And that puts you in the line of the faithful from Abel through Jesus, through everyone who's ever suffered, to the present day and into eternity. Which I don't have time to go into now. But I want, I want to encourage you, for some of you, you mentally need the metaphor of martyrdom to be saved at all. Because in America, we're so consumeristic, we take things by pieces. A little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that. That when you, whenever you hear people talking about Jesus, you naturally go, okay, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But you don't think of it that way. You don't think of it in the identity of martyrdom, in the identity, in the identity of Jesus is worth so much, I'm so fully converted to him, and I want to imitate him so completely that his life and fragrance will, will ring out for me, no matter what happens to me. And you have to think about it that way to even be saved. And so for some of you, this is the moment where you should, you should think about this and you should turn to Jesus with your heart and your mind and you should embrace him with the heart of a martyr. With the heart of somebody who will be a faithful witness no matter what happens. To want one thing and to turn to God from all those idols and to serve the living and true God as you wait for his son from heaven. We're going we're gonna to sing some songs of worship give us an opportunity to declare Jesus' worth as we order our hearts around imitating him and being his faithful witness. And then we're going to have a, a short um, Ask Me Anything Q&A time. You can, um, you can type questions into the, into the live feed there, and um, we'll have them. And um, so please do so. If you have a question, if there's something ringing in your heart, even if it feels like an emotional question, ask it. What, what, I, what I want is not good questions. What I want is earnest questions. And if you have one, please ask it. God, as we turn ourselves to worship you for a little while, I pray that in some people they would be accepting you fully and completely, for maybe for the first time. Maybe they're already converted, but you're calling them into the, a greater depth of freedom in you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd work a new—that it would feel like a new conversion, even if they're already believers. And I pray for other people that you would be saving them for the first time. That it's through this metaphor of coming, following you as a martyr would as a full imitating disciple, that that would shake off some of the self-deception and push away the other idols so they can accept you as the one true God who loves them 
and has died to justify them. I pray right now, some people will be believing in you freely for the first time and be converted and experience the miracle of regeneration. And I pray that for all of us, we would be drawn more deeply into a commitment to you as your imitators and ultimately your martyrs. In Jesus' name.